This special episode of Profiles with author Tim O'Brien is hosted by documentary producer Ron Osgood. Tim O'Brien is the author of several books, including The Things They Carried, which is about the war in Vietnam. This interview was recorded as part of Ron Osgood's upcoming documentary, The Vietnam War, American War, Stories from All Sides. So could you start by giving just a brief bio of yourself, your military uh, service? Sure. My name is Tim O'Brien. I served in Vietnam from uh, February of 1969 to March of 1970. I was a combat infantryman, and I served with the 5th of the 46th Infantry Battalion. Uh, in the Americal Division. I want to go back and talk a little bit about that time when we're in turning the age of 18, whether we're still in high school or just out of high school, whether we go to college and get a deferment or not, with that uh, knowledge that at some point that Vietnam may be calling us. And some uh, everyone has their own story. Can yeah. you kind of walk us through your story? Well, it's a pretty standard story. I graduated from college in uh, McAllister College in St. Paul, Minnesota in uh, May of 1968. And within, I don't know, a month or so, received my draft notice. At that point, the uh, student deferments for graduate school had ended. You couldn't get a deferment for going to grad school. I had a full-ride scholarship to go to Harvard University to pursue graduate studies, and yet that meant nothing. So I was faced with a pretty standard choice. Do I go to the war, or do I not go to the war? <laughs> you know, do I say no? And there were various ways of saying no. You could, you know, just let yourself be hauled off to jail, or you could uh, seek a conscientious objector status. Or you could go to, you know, another country, Canada, probably. And I wrestled with the question all summer long in the summer of '68, trying to figure out what was the right thing to do. And never really made a, a decision to, you know, let myself go to the war. It was more a default or a kind of forfeiture. I just let gravity take over, let events take me to the war. I did contemplate going to Canada. I grew up in Minnesota, and that was on the Canadian border, so logistically it would have been a pretty easy thing to do, just get in my car and drive for seven or eight hours, and I'd, I'd be at the Canadian border. But I felt the, all the pressures that many of us felt at the time, the pressures of conscience, and I loved my country, didn't want to leave it. I was fearful of, of small Minnesota towns, uh, censor of my of you know leaving the humiliation and the ridicule and being thought of as a coward even though my conscience said to me this war is not a good one it doesn't uh, it seemed to me that that there was no sense of consensus for the war families were divided there were protests in the street congress was divided and so when the smart people in their pinstripe suits and couldn't make their minds up about the rectitude of the war. I thought that's not a good sign that, that this is a, uh, a war that we should be, be fighting. At the same time, I was young. I didn't know everything and still don't. And then at the other same time, you do have, no matter what your age and no matter what you 
know or don't know. You do have to, your body has to do something. And you try to do, make it do the things that are, the thing that is, seems most right and with imperfect knowledge. So I ended up, uh, ended up in Sioux Falls, South Dakota, and raising my right hand and joining the Army and going to basic training where I became a you know, soldier and then found myself assigned to an MOS, which means a military job designation of 11 Bravo, a foot soldier. And within a few months, I found myself in Vietnam as walking the rice paddies and going through the jungles. Pretty standard story. Yeah. Well, you've expressed a lot of the stories through your writing, but I wonder if you could talk us through a little bit about kind of the day in the life. Yeah, as a, as a foot soldier, it was not all combat. I mean, it was mostly a, what we called humping, moving from ville to ville, often without any knowledge of why we were going, where we were going, never knowing the names of these places, never having access to the intelligence that I suppose our superiors had about why we were going there. We just went. And we'd walk into a ville and we'd search it and kick over jugs of rice and, you know, interrogate the civilians as best we could. They didn't speak our language and we didn't speak theirs. So it was kind of a pidgin English sort of thing. Nobody really communicating. Some days somebody might die stepping on a landmine or getting shot. Other days nothing would happen at all. And then a week later you come back to the same village and do it all again. Somebody might die, somebody might not die. And you'd come back another week later and do it again. And it, was, it was without a sense of destination. In World War II, we have this image of heading for Tokyo or heading for Berlin. We were going somewhere. And for us in Vietnam, it was a sense of just circularity. We were going in circles without the sense of winning anything. <laughs> because after being in a village for two hours and all the stuff that may happen in there, you didn't hold it. The village wasn't yours. You, uh, you hadn't won ground that you would then defend. You'd simply leave the village and it would revert to the enemy, uh, the Viet Cong. So you didn't have this sense of accomplishment. For all the death and all the mayhem, you didn't feel you were in a strictly military sense, winning anything that you could, that was tactile, that you could point to and say, that ground is now ours. All that blood spilled was spilled, and now we own that ground, which was the feeling in Europe that people did have during World War II, that these, this ground, is, we paid a heavy price for it, but it's now ours. These villages have been liberated. We didn't have that. And uh, so there was that uh, a sense of futility to it all that seemed to undermine the whole enterprise, at least for me. Being a young man in a foreign land, seeing this happen week by week, same drill, same location, week after mm -hmm. week, I just kind of wonder, you know, if there's, as you said, no sense of accomplishment that you're finding, but 
did you see yourself as a soldier or just a young man who was kind of out of place? I saw myself as both a soldier and a young man out of place, sort of melded together into one thing. There was a sense of unreality about it all, that what is this guy doing? I hated Boy Scouts, and I didn't like bugs and mosquitoes and leeches, and I didn't like sleeping out in the rain night after night. I hadn't done it as a kid. I didn't like it as a kid, and I didn't like it as a soldier. So it felt unreal. Is my body really doing this stuff? Am I really pulling this trigger? Is it? And I knew in one sense it was real, but it didn't feel real. It felt like a dream that I was trapped in and couldn't wake up from. And now, four decades later, it feels even more that way because time is a way of erasing detail. You forget things, and you especially forget the gaps between a very memorable event, somebody, you know, a firefight, and the other memorable event, and in between is lost time. Where did that time go? All those, you know, swatting the mosquitoes and walking and pumping, you know, 100 pounds on your back or 80 or the heat and the, the constant fear in your stomach. Even though nothing's happening, you're afraid something will happen. For us in our, my area of operations, which was a province called Quang Nai, which is the province where the My Lai Massacre happened. It was a very rural, uh, uh, kind of country bumpkin area where it had a long history of opposition to the French when they were there. It was heavily Viet Cong, and it was very rural. And the place was littered with landmines. And so on top of this sense of not accomplishing anything, we were being blown up by the land. Little things we called toe poppers that blow your foot off, bouncing betties that would, you know, hit you in the waist and stomach. And then booby-trapped artillery rounds that would blow up whole squads of guys. And you couldn't fight back against them. It wasn't an enemy that you could shoot back at and win the battle. It was just a mind blowing you up. Then another one, then another one, then another one. And I would say probably 90% of our casualties came from these things. And so on top of the sense of no accomplishment is the sense of you can't even fight back because landmines are, are already dead. <laughs> They're steel. They're not alive. Yeah, as a consequence, uh, a sense of frustration and bitterness and anger developed in all of us in one way or another. You can't find the enemy, and there is no enemy to find. That They blended with the population. You didn't know who your friends were and who your foes were, unless they had a weapon and were shooting at you. Then you knew. So you took it out. You took your anger and your frustration and your bitterness out on anything that presented itself, a pig or a water buffalo or a house, just burn it down. And it became pretty much SOP that if we took sniper fire, or someone stepped on a mine, that wherever it happened, we'd just waste the place. We'd step back, and a lieutenant or a company commander would call in artillery and gunships, and the place would just burn. We'd just fry it. And sometimes, I suppose, an enemy soldier might die amidst all that. Other times, you know, there'd be civilians dying. And that's how civil wars, guerrilla wars, that's the dynamic underneath them. 
the non-combatant casualties begin to pile up. And then you face the next problem, which is the problem of what did you win? You might have turned an indifferent village into a village that now is not indifferent, hates you, and now you're enemy. And so over the course of that year in combat over there, I began to learn that a bullet can, can kill the enemy, yes, but it can also make the enemy, you know? You can, that bullet strikes a six-year-old kid. You've got one angry mother and father and neighbor and sister and cousin, and violence can be counterproductive. The thing you want to accomplish, to say win a war, you may end up losing the war because of the, the, you know, the, the violence. And I certainly felt that in my, my tour. I felt that we were manufacturing enemies as opposed to winning a war. I didn't feel like we were winning anything. We were just making everybody angry at us for all the you know, trashing their patties and shooting their animals and you know, burning their houses. And, and it, was so, it was so common. It wasn't like every now and then. It was a common thing in the bad areas. It was the response to the kind of war it was. I've heard you tell the story about uh uh, being by the rice paddy and and uh, having some enemy soldiers not too far in the distance kind of run across the, yes. in your viewpoint. Yeah. Would you share that story? Yeah, it was a uh, night in, I think, July of 1969. It was around 1 or 2 in the morning, and our company commander told his lieutenants to, we were encamped on a hill and we had our foxholes, some of us asleep, others on guard. We were told to saddle up. We were going out on a night march to a, uh, a destination. We wasn't even told. We didn't know where we were going. We just said, get ready to go. We're going. And so in the middle of the night, about a hundred of us or so saddled up, which means put on your gear, your canteens, and your rucksack, and your ammo, and grab your weapon. And we walked for two or three hours through the Vietnam dark, pitch black. It's about street lamps and this was this was blackness and it was terrifying in its own right to do this we you know we did this a lot going out on ambushes at night and the terror was I'm going to get separated from my fellow soldiers because it's so black and there's the fear of you know if if you're separated how am I going to find anybody and there are Viet Cong out there Anyway, we arrived finally at a small sleeping village around 4 or 5 in the morning. And we encircled the village. It was called a cordon, where you'd put a, three platoons and circled the village. And the fourth platoon was outside the village along a paddy dike. And the idea was at full, full light that the three platoons would sweep through the village and push the enemy out of the village into this rice paddy. And the fourth platoon, my own, would gun them down out in this open paddy. Apparently they'd re- the higher-ups had received intelligence that there, were this, that there were Viet Cong in this village. And this operation more or less worked. They rarely did work. The enemy could hear us coming from miles away. You know, we were young and stupid and lighting up cigarettes and violating, you know, any kind of discipline, joking and talking and canteens clanking in the night, but this this one kind of worked. At full light, uh, three Viet Cong figures came out of this village. They were as far away as, I don't know, 10 yards, 15, 
You couldn't see their features because it wasn't light enough, but you could see their silhouettes very clearly against a kind of purple background of the coming dawn. And we opened up on with everything we had, you know, M16s and M60s and claymores through grenades. And 10 minutes later or 15 minutes later when when uh, it was light enough, uh, we found one dead Viet Cong soldier. The other two somehow, we I don't know how we could possibly have not killed them because they were so close and there were so many of us and because we had so much firepower, but somehow we didn't. It says something, I think, about how f afraid you are. I mean, you don't really aim when you're afraid. You just shoot. And you usually shoot too high. But in any case, uh, what what haunts me about that night is is First, it's one of the few times in combat I actually saw the living enemy. There they were, and they had weapons. Usually in firefights, you don't see much of anything. If there are muzzle flashes and there's mortar rounds kind of blooping off in the distance and falling on you, and there's machine gun fire coming from somewhere, but you don't even know where the enemy is. It's just so, it's so chaotic, and you're so terrified. And you can't see anything. This is you know, dense foliage all around you. And your ears get deceptive. You think you could tell, oh, by, by hearing something, I know where the gunfire is coming from, but it doesn't work that way. Because over there, people are shooting back. And who, which one's the enemy? Is the enemy there? Are those the American guys? You lose, you lose a sense of where everybody is. And uh, it's just chaos. But in this occasion, this night, I could actually see the enemy, and it was stunning in a way to f to uh, have a, an unbroken field of vision where you could actually see the enemy, which usually lived in your imagination somewhere, with kind of fantasies about where they are and what they're doing, and are they prowling over there or are they waiting over here? But on this occasion, it could be seen. The second thing that I remember and that haunts me about it is that uh, I will never know whether that dead body out there was killed by a bullet from my weapon. We were all shooting. Maybe a bullet from my weapon hit him and killed him, or maybe not. I don't. There's no way of knowing. However, I was there, and I pulled the trigger, so I can't avoid responsibility for that. It was like a 16-year-old kid. I mean, it was a young, young, I mean, kid with a mom and a dad and sisters and brothers, presumably, and maybe a girlfriend. Who knows? He was dead. As I could have been dead the next day or the day before. Um, a human being. And so I have been haunted by a sense of responsibility and it's true I was a soldier, and true I'd, I'd gone. I could have said no. And the, so I wake up at night thinking, am I res responsible for that person's death? And the answer has to be, yeah, I am. Much as I hated the war, as much as I thought it was uh, a, a huge national blunder with tragic consequences, I nonetheless took part in it, and all the 
words and rationale and so on, they're not going to erase the fact of my pulling the trigger that day. And my own culpability in it all is, is beyond dispute. I just can't dispute it. And I can't wish it away. I can't pretend it didn't happen. I can't hide behind, you know, the cloak of patriotism and sacrifice, the flag. I, I, I killed a kid, or I was part of the killing of the kid. And true, he was a soldier, but he's also a kid, human being. A loss that, uh, what did we win from that kid's death? I mean, or from the three million other deaths of Vietnamese and our own 56,000. What was one? How's the world any better? How's that country any better off? And how are we any better off? I don't see it. Most soldiers try to say, it couldn't have been in vain. It had to be for something. But there are times in life when things are for vain. They happen. Otherwise, those words wouldn't be in the dictionary. You wouldn't need those words. There are occasions when mistakes are made and, you, and, and it's a, all you've tried to do has been in vain. Didn't achieve anything good or worthwhile. And that's how I, that's how I view my time in Vietnam. I must add that I think probably 80% of uh, combat veterans will disagree with me quite vehemently. They'll say, ah, it was all for good purpose, and we were defending the world for against communism and um, things like this. So I want to add that proviso. I, I, I disagree with them, too, though. I think they're totally wrong. I think not only is it wrong, I think they're deceiving themselves. Okay. That's a good, good time to take a break for Okay. You. Sounds good. Come on, all of you big strong men. Uncle Sam needs your help again. Got himself in a terrible jam. Way down yonder in Vietnam. Put down your books, pick up a gun. We're gonna have a whole lot of fun. And it's one, two, three. What are we fighting for? Don't ask me, I don't give a damn. The next stop is Vietnam. And it's five, six, seven. Open up pearly gates. Well, there ain't no time to wonder why Whoopee, we're all gonna die Come on, generals, and let's move fast Your big chances come at last Now you can't go out and get those reds Only good commie is one that's dead You know that peace can only be won When blown them all the kingdom come And it's one, two, three What are we fighting for? Don't ask me, I don't give a damn The next stop is Vietnam Production support for Profiles comes from Smithville, a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922, with residential and business internet, voice, and security services. Smithville, local pride, global technology. Information at smithville.net. Welcome back to a special episode of Profiles with guest Tim O'Brien, hosted by Ron Osgood. Well, Tim, I wanted to follow up about your tours and... uh ask you if you had uh, started your, you know, or had, had, had some interest in writing while you were in the service. Yeah, I think I probably for the began writing seriously in Vietnam 
I didn't think of it as serious writing. I thought of it as sitting down at the foxhole after a day's march and and with a piece of paper and a pen or a pencil writing sentences about what had happened that day. I didn't do it every night or every day, but I, I did it enough to accumulate a stack of pages by the time I'd left Vietnam, maybe 40 pages or so of handwritten little vignettes about that day, what had happened and what had happened that night. So I returned with uh, the beginnings of what became my first book when I, uh, I went off to grad, grad school and after the war. And after a day's studying and you know, going to classes and so on, late at night I would continue it until I had what became my first book. But I did start in Vietnam. Did you think that there was a career in writing at that time? No, I, did, I wasn't thinking in those terms. I was thinking of leaving some record behind of this horrendous year in, in the war. Maybe for uh, my parents or my brother or sister or someone. And it wasn't really until a friend of mine in graduate school saw the pile of pages that he, he said, what's that? And I said, uh, that's pages. Those are pages I've written about my time in Vietnam. And he read them and said, you should try publishing them. They're good. And I sent them off to a publisher. And not until the publisher called me and said, yeah, we're going to publish this, did I think, maybe I'll be a, a writer. I had always dreamed of being a writer from the time I was a little boy. That's what I really wanted to do. But had, it seemed too fanciful and impossible. And uh, I, I think I must have conceived of writers as coming from LA and New York and Pittsburgh, and, but not from the little cow town in southern Minnesota. It just seemed an impossible dream. And I, it wasn't until I was actually doing it that I decided, that, OK, that's what I'm going to do for a career. When the publisher published it, was that the was that a, a preliminary uh, uh, adaptation of the book, or was it the book? It was the, the book. book. It was yeah. called "If I Die in a Combat Zone." It's my it's a war. It's a memoir of my time in Vietnam. It's unlike the rest of my books, which are novels, fiction, this was a, a memoir. When you read uh, "When If I Die in a Combat Zone," and then if you read "Things I Carried," um, there are some similarities in. Uh, in the writing style, and there are some similarities in the kinds of things that you talk about. Mm -hmm. But as you just kind of uh, uh, said, you were a novelist, mm -hmm. and because of the because of uh, memory for one, and uh, and the ability to tell a story through uh, elements of fiction, mm -hmm. that's kind of been the way that you've moved your career. And I wonder yeah. if you can talk about how that uh, played out. Yeah, there's there's so much to say. That it's even hard to know where to where to start. It's, um, I do love story, and I think story in the end is more convincing than rhetoric and argumentation and analysis. That there's something about a story that brings a reader into the story. You're part of it. You're not looking at it. You're in it. If you like the story. You're rooting for the characters and you're identifying and you're wondering what's going to happen next and will that problem be solved and how will it be solved. 
that you're in it and you're not hearing a polemic or an argument pro-war or anti-war you're just in a story and as a writer I've learned to trust story to carry whatever meaning has to be carried and not to impose it on it but just tell the story and not even worry too much about verisimilitude is it is it real is it anchored in reality maybe a story wants to go off into daydream and into the improbable and most good stories i think do have at least some aspect of the extraordinary they're not they're off the beaten track you don't tell a story about i got up this morning and i had a bowl of cheerios and they were pretty good people would stare at you as you're now staring at me that's not a story but you would tell a story that uh, I got up this morning and I had a bowl of Cheerios, but to my surprise, they were not shaped as circles. They were shaped as semicircles. And I remember staring at those Cheerios, thinking, those Cheerios are half as delicious as they used to be. And then I remember going off to work and... and uh, thinking as I sat down at my desk, you know, I, 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 I sort of feel as if I've become half a man. Something has happened where I've shrunk, not physically, but somewhere inside. Well, I'm not arguing the merits of that story. You'd have to go, you'd have to go somewhere else, and so things would have to happen. But I would argue that you would listen to that story with what half how could Cheerios be cut in half and what do you mean half a man and what what else what's going to happen you'd listen to it in the way you would not listen to the ordinary so when I'm writing about Vietnam I'm looking for the off the beaten track um, sometimes it comes from my memory and real event that was really extraordinary and I hadn't seen it before and other times my imagination does it. I'll imagine, what if that had happened that day, that event that's not common? What if one day a soldier said, I'm out of here, and picked up his gear and started walking into the, between the mountains heading for Paris? Well, it never happened, but I imagined it, and I thought, certainly thought about it when I was in combat. We all did. No matter how pro-war you were in your politics, you didn't like it. You didn't like, you know, being afraid all the time. You didn't like putting your hands in gore, and you didn't, you didn't like being shot at. And so we'd all talk about, boy, you know, you, you, you don't have to do this. All you have to do is fall down. And what are they going to do? Send you to Nam? You're already there. So they'll pick you up, and they'll, they may court-martial you, or they may whatever they do but and so in this story it, it, that I just mentioned about a guy you know, walking away from the war it became a novel one of my best novels called Going After Cacciato that is essentially that story one day a guy says I'm out of here and begins walking away from the war heading for Paris and a group of soldiers is dispatched to go after him and bring him back he can't walk away from a war so it's a story that's not it didn't happen as far as I know, 
But it could have happened, and maybe it should have happened, in my own case anyway. And that's where I, that's, that's an example of what I mean by story, that it's off the beaten track, a guy walking away from a war and heading for Paris, and what happens along the way? How does he feel about being a deserter? And what does that do to him psychologically? Well, how does he talk to, to his mom and dad about it? All those you know, very, really important questions come up that aren't necessarily rooted in what you actually witnessed. And that's, that, as a storyteller, that interests me. Sticking with the going after Cacciato, uh, the idea was planted in your mind uh, through the stories that you had with the other, with your other guys while you're in the service. Mm -hmm. But at some point in your career, that popped up as an opportunity to tell a story. Right. And how does how does that happen? It just you're looking for you know how do you struggle to find ideas for a for a novel? Well, they, ideas are usually rooted for me at least in the real world, something I've experienced. And in Vietnam, we'd sit around our foxholes at night and we'd look at the mountains and what's to stop us from walking out of here? It was done as a joke, you know, a way of passing the time. And one guy would say, yeah, we've, we've got rations and we've got weapons to get more to eat along the way. And, and then the other guy would say, yeah, you know, who's going to stop us? I mean, this jungle, they, we can't find the Viet Cong. How are they going to find us? And it was done. It wasn't done seriously. It, but it was, there was a, but it, 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 that is, we're going to do this thing. It was done as a kind of fantasy, you know, we, we can get out of here. And the thing about this desire to run from violence, it's, it's, it's part of being, it's, it's like rabbits running from danger. You, you, your body wants out of, out of it the way your body would want out of a cancer ward. Literature, the good literature of war, is just, is, that theme is dominant. In Catch-22, there's Orr, the character of Orr rowing for Sweden, and there's, you get out of the war, and there's, uh, you know, Farewell to Arms, the very title is, you know, the Frederick Henry, the character, the main character in Hemingway's book, rowing away from the war uh, across the lake to escape it. And it's, in, it's in Homer, Red Badge of Courage. I mean, it, it's, it's a very fundamental theme of, of literature about war because it's human gut. You don't like murder and violence and all that. You want your body wants out of it. No matter how much your intellect may be for the war, you still don't like it, and you still want to escape it, and you want it over. And um, so the ideas for my, the stories are, all, are, for me at least, are all uh, anchored in in real event. Right. So when you're when you begin a project. Uh, in your style, how does research of the topic come into play? I don't research much, I, a little bit, but not much. Um, if I begin doing research, if I have to research something, I feel I don't know enough to write about it. I have to know something with my bones and my blood and my, and my brain. I have to feel very comfortable in the terrain that, that I'm writing about. Whether it's a love story or a father story or a war story, it doesn't, I have to really feel that I know it. The research is only, for me, done in instances of, of that I feel it, uh, if I make a mistake of fact, that that may 
hurt the story. And so I'll I'll look up something, you know, that is this town east or west of that town. Uh, factual things I will look up. But I won't embark on a project where I have to research everything, the whole milieu. I have to know, be pretty familiar with the, with the geographical and the physical and the... Uh, and the spiritual terrain, or I'm, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna write about it. When I write, I have to feel a sense of passion for the material. I gotta feel this is really important. And so uh, I'll just as an example, I wrote a book called *In the Lake of the Woods*, which is the story of a man who has been in a war, who has come home, and is holding secrets inside, not just from the public, but also from his wife and from his, you know, family and. and more than that, secrets even from himself. He won't. He doesn't even want to look at what he did. He keeps it secret. He, he, the way we develop these, this camouflage that uh, uh, around ourselves. I'm a good person, and I, you know, and despite those things, I'm still good. And the, that sense of secrecy comes from my own life. It comes from not wanting to, as most veterans feel of a war. You don't want to confront your own failures of nerve and your own sins and your the nastiness that you uh, were part of in a war. You don't want to look at it. And that can be corrosive um, and it can be soul-killing. It can kill your spirit by bottling all this stuff up and not looking at it uh, honestly and directly. And that's what the story is about, about how a marriage was destroyed by a war that had been over for many decades. Do the guys you served with when they read your books psychoanalyze every little detail? And It depends on the reader. Some readers psychoanalyze it all. I mean, I... People do all kinds of things with books. They can. I had a person who, you know, said, "Yours, yours is the only book I have ever read." And I said, "Huh?" It was, I think, a sophomore in college or maybe a junior. Yeah, it's the only book I've ever read the whole thing. And I said, "The only book?" And he said, "Yeah." Well, he meant it to be flattering, and but I remember feeling. Oh, what a, what an impoverished life you've led <laughs> if you haven't read books. I mean, so everybody makes something different. I guess that, that I should take some heart from that, thinking, well, maybe my book now will make that person want to read another one, and maybe after that read another one. And then other really you know, other people will find this aspect that means something to them, and others that aspect. But for me, it's just to tell a story that somehow makes people feel. That's what I really care about. That no matter what the subject, it could be Vietnam or it could be love or fathers or whatever the subject. I want something, the object for me is just to make people feel, to be immersed in a story and feel the story happening around them. What's, the, uh, what's kind of a routine for a writer? How do you write? Well, I get up in the morning, I get my kids off to school, and then I sit down at my word processor or computer, and I try to enter a dream state. You, you, you fidget for a while, but the idea is to 
you, you know the story you're working on and so it's like trying to go back asleep and recapture the dream you were having last night where were we and oh this person is hanging off a cliff and I've got to see what happens and then you begin writing sentences and and somewhere in this mix of language and imagination things the story in your head you fall into this kind of dream and your fingers as as a type are trying to find the words to capture the dream so that it feels real to the reader and is moving and the reader maybe maybe it's a funny scene and you and the reader you want to you want to try to get the dream to be funny and so there's a you try to press yourself to write words that kind of go toward f- funny or toward scary or toward sad or whatever the mood of the piece is but it is when it's going when writing is going well it does feel like a kind of waking dream it feels as if i'm awake but i'm dreaming or fantasizing and I'm immersed in it very hard a very hard thing to talk about yeah, yeah. it sounds mystical and it's really not and we all do it you know we all fantasize at times in our life and there for a writer it's just a, an elongated fantasy it goes on for years as you write a book do you write in a linear style do you start at the beginning and finish I it? don't write in a linear style I, I uh, write all over the map sounds like you write sentence by sentence but mm-hmm. I'm, I'm assuming you've already got the scene in your mind I have part of when I have parts of scenes in my mind I have whatever happened earlier a woman says to a guy I love you and I might have stopped the day before at those lines mm-hmm. and then the next day I go back to work and I look at what I'd written the day before and I hear this woman say I love you and then I try to enter the dream what is the man gonna say in, in response mm-hmm. Um, and then the, the, you try out sentences of dialogue until one seems to you that, that's interesting. It's not the usual response, or it's it's usual but has a slight edge to it that's not usual. Um, and then you try to follow the dialogue, the scene. So I'm not entirely in control of. I I, I don't outline it. I don't think. Here's where I want this scene to go. I want these people to end up at the Ritz-Carlton in Manhattan. I don't think that way. I think whatever comes out of the dialogue will lead to the next thing. So it's not outlined or planned. I try to listen to the characters and to my own internal dream, but I don't know what's going to happen next. The way if you're having a real dream, you don't know what's going to happen next in the dream. And if you did know, you'd be kind of bored by it. So you're looking for that, which is kind of unexpected and surprising to you, and sounds interesting and exciting, and that's that's a good line of dialogue. That'll take me to the next step, and that's a story I'd want to read. The things they carried was, began, uh, as best I can remember, with a, a sentence: "This is true." I had a buddy in Vietnam named Rat Kiley, and that's that. Those sentences ended up right in the middle of the book. When I wrote the line, this is true, I didn't know what was true. I didn't know what the word this referred to. I didn't know who Rat Kylie was. All I was, I was interested, as soon as I wrote the sentence, this is true, I was Im- immediately interested in, what do you, 
what does truth mean? True in what way? Is the, is the character lying when he says this is true, or is he telling the truth this is true? It, something about the words captured me, probably because in Vietnam, I didn't know what truth was anymore. Thou shalt not kill? Is that true? My drill sergeants didn't think so. They told me I'd better kill, or I'd get court-martialed. So, is the Bible true, or is it only sometimes true when it's convenient? Is it only true when it's, there are no qualifiers? You know, thou shalt not kill, except when your country tells you to. doesn't say that. So, are the ministers wrong? And right away, there's a corruption that's happening, and you're, 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 suddenly the old truths are no longer true. Ugliness swirls into beauty, and... And right spills over into wrong. What was right in the civilian world is wrong in the war world, and vice versa. And you lose your sense of who am I? What's true about myself? I thought I was a nice, quiet, decent guy until I found myself full of rage and anger at the death of a friend, willing to burn and kill anything. What happened to me, and who am I? And truth gets undermined. There's that phrase, you know, the truth is the first casualty of war. And it's, it doesn't apply just to journalism. It applies also to the human soul. You lose contact with certainty. I'm certain about certain things. Everything is suspect, including your own heart. So the words, this is true, led me that day. So I think that those words interested me. I thought, what in God's name is true? I don't know, because of uh, that upside-down feeling, that Alice in Wonderland feeling of, of uh, Vietnam. In, uh, in my work, you know, adding visuals to the story, it mm -hmm. has its advantages and disadvantages, <laughs> kind of just the opposite. But it's always important that the first picture people see mm -hmm. is really the, very important. important. So yeah. the first sentence... Yeah, they are. That's very important. I try to teach my. I teach writing now and then, and I try to teach my students that that those that opening to a story or a novel or a book of pictures has to immediately capture something. You have to have a reason to turn the page. I'm going to go to page two. And if there isn't something on that first page that gives you a reason to make that motion with your finger to turn the page, you're right away in trouble. And if by page six your finger doesn't want to do that anymore, you're in deep trouble. And that's the same in real life, that if you go into a bar and you start to tell a story, if in the first few sentences the story is boring and long-winded and all the rest of stuff that can, you're going to Say, like, God, I hope this guy shuts up. I hope he stops telling me this. This is really bad. And you'll try to find ways to change. But if the first few lines are really interesting, you know, I killed my wife this morning, and I had to have a drink, you're going to listen. <laughs> you're going to say, you killed your wife? You'd have a reason to turn the page, and the page might be call the cops, or the page might be tell me more, or the... Page might be, I need a drink too. <laughs> I, I, I can't believe I just heard you say that. 
And that's what openings do. They, you don't wait 25 pages to have that line done because nobody's going to get to the 25th page to get to that line, I killed my wife. And fairly rapidly, it doesn't have to be right away, but fairly swiftly in storytelling, whether it's through images or through words, something has to capture our imaginations and our interest to you know, turn the page. Any last reflective things for young people about uh, <laughs> uh, about? I think you've pretty much covered. I think those I have. Topics, yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. Thanks a lot. You bet. Appreciate pleasure. It. Great pleasure. The program you just heard was recorded in September of 2011. Production support for Profiles comes from Smithville, a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922, with residential and business internet, voice, and security services. Smithville, local pride, global technology. Information at smithville.net. Copies of this or other programs can be obtained by calling 812 812- 855-1357. Information about profiles, including archives of past shows, can be found on our website, wfiu.org. Profiles is a production of WFIU and comes from the studios at Indiana University. Mia Partlow, producer. Please join us again for the next edition of Profiles. For WFIU, thanks for listening.